Welcome to the London First Baptist Church podcast. This is the Sunday morning service of May 10th from Pastor Brett Cottrell. We're going to begin this morning in Matthew chapter 1. We're going to be in a couple different areas, a couple different scriptures this morning. Now, as uh, you may be aware of today's Mother's Day, if you aren't aware of that, well, then someone's probably going to make you aware of that really soon. And uh, now, while I don't speak from personal experience, obviously, because I am not a mom, I understand, I've heard that motherhood can be at some times difficult. You may realize that, moms. Um, now, there are days I'm no. In fact, I, I, would be, I would assume that motherhood, for the most part, is full of joy and uh, there's love and there's laughter and there's pride beyond measure. Now, even this last week or so for Angela and I, we have two sons graduating, one from college and one from high school. And obviously the circumstances this fall have been, or this spring have been uh, really unusual in that regards. But nonetheless, there is a great deal of pride that comes from being a father and a mother to two young men as we have. But the truth is, sometimes motherhood also comes with days of pain and grief, humility, perhaps even feelings of inadequacy or failure. On most days, I would imagine the bad outweighs the good. The joy outweighs the grief. But to pretend those difficult days aren't there uh, is just ignoring the obvious. And the truth is, even the moms in Bible days and Scripture encountered the same things. We're going to begin this morning in Matthew chapter 1, of all places. And we're going to see that in the Matthew chapter 1, in the, the genealogy of Jesus, these are scriptures that simply list the the ancestors of Jesus, that there are five moms listed. Now, we would gather and then we would know that Mary is one of those, and we're going to spend the majority of our time this morning looking briefly at Mary's life. But there are four other women in the line of Christ that are listed in the genealogies of Matthew chapter 1. Now, that's a big deal because in those days, women were not generally listed. Moms were not listed in the genealogies. They weren't considered relevant to family history. And yet in, this day, in that day and age when that was true, God saw fit to include the names of four other women who, who were moms serving in the line of Christ. So I want to begin this morning by looking at those briefly, those four women. Matthew chapter 1, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz uh, was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Now there are four women's names in these four, in, these, in this short little passage here. We have uh, first Tamar, then we have Rahab, then we have uh, Ruth, and then we have Bathsheba. Now some of these may be a little bit more familiar to you than others, and we don't have a great deal of information about all of them, and yet God saw fit to put into scripture these 
for women in the line of Christ. So there had to be a reason for it. Nothing finds itself in Scripture by accident. So there's a reason that God has these things for us in the, in the Scriptures. Now, let me just give you a brief summary of what these four women endured. Three of these women lost at least one husband. All right? Uh, Ruth, her husband died. Tamar had two die. And Bathsheba had hers murdered by what would become her second husband. On top of that, two of them, Tamar and Rahab, engaged in prostitution. One of them, Bathsheba, probably was assaulted or at least had an encounter with David probably against her will. Tamar is mistreated not only by others, but she's mistreated by her father-in-law, Judah. Ruth is a Moabite outcast, a foreigner, cursed, and she finds herself devoted to taking care of a woman named Naomi who has called herself bitter. So this is quite a history these four women have. And yet they're listed. Now I want to, to mention here a couple things about these women as we move forward. First of all, let me begin with Tamar. Now Tamar's story is found in Genesis chapter 38. And... Um, I just tell you this, if you aren't familiar with the story, it is not rated PG. <laughs> it is a, a, a very sordid, a difficult passage of scripture that it happens. In short, Tamar's husband, Judah's son, dies. In fact, the reason he dies is God says that her husband, Judah's son, and by the way, that guy's name is Ur, was simply evil. In fact, he was so evil that God just says, I'm taking you and killing you. So that's what happens. So, by the way, in Judah, and we know Judah is one of the sons of Jacob. He's the fourth son. He's going to be the one eventually will be the, the one that Jesus is born from, the line of the tribe of Judah. But Judah himself is a real jerk. Uh, he's, he's not a good guy at this point in time. So Judah is a bad guy. His son Ur is so evil that God just takes him uh, by the law of what's called leveret marriage. Uh, God had provided, the laws of the day provided that uh her husband's brother, that would be the second son of Judah, would marry Tamar and provide an heir in his brother's name. But he didn't want to do that. His name was Onan. And so before it's all said and done, Onan is killed by God as well. So now Tamar has gone through two brothers. Uh, Judah, there's one more son, but Judah does not want Tamar to marry him. So he makes a false promise to her, sends her away, and uh, you can read it later on. She takes some unusual steps, we'll just say, to make sure that she has a son who can uh, go by the name of Judah or at least go through the, the line of Judah. She fights. She refuses to be let go. She refuses to be mistreated. She fights for what she knows is legally and rightfully hers. And through her very unorthodox actions, she actually ensures that Judah who is irresponsible and, and uh, a liar at this point in time, she ensures that Judah, who mistreated her, actually has an heir. Without the actions of Tamar, as weird and as bizarre as they are, without her actions, Judah most likely does not have a, a grandson who can carry on the line and, there, and there's no line of the Messiah. So Tamar is a fighter. And through her actions, she redeems and perseveres, or preserves, excuse me, the line of Judah. Now the next name on here is Rahab. You may be a little bit more familiar with the name Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute. She was a citizen of the city of Jericho. 
And so when the people of Israel, under the leadership of Joshua, are getting ready to come into Jericho, they sent two spies into the town to kind of scout everything out. Those two men have been found out. They're running for their lives. Rahab, the prostitute, hides them, keeps them secure, and she makes a deal. She tells them, I know that God is with you. I trust and believe in your God. I will keep you if you will uh, preserve me when the battle comes and when God brings you in. So Rahab is a woman that despite her background, despite her her life of prostitution sees and encounters the God of Israel and says, I choose to trust him and trust you over my own past. And God preserves her and now she is in the line of Christ. Ruth, probably a name you're even more familiar with. There's a whole book of the Bible, the Old Testament, named after her. You know the story. Her, her husband dies. The other, his brother dies as well. So Ruth goes back to, uh, to Israel, back to the town of Bethlehem, with her mother-in-law, Naomi. Um, Ruth is a Moabite, uh, a, a people that are uh, descendants of Lot, Abraham's nephew. Uh, they were cursed by God because they had opposed the people of Israel multiple times, and the Moabites were known for worshiping a god by the name of Chemosh, who desired human sacrifice. So God had cursed the Moabites. They weren't even supposed to be around. The men of the Moabite people weren't even allowed to come and worship in Israel at all. That's how cursed the Moabites were. And yet she devotes herself to Naomi, a woman who called herself bitter. She devotes herself to Naomi and says, your God will be my God. And where you go, I will go. And because of Ruth's great love and great devotion, she finds herself in the line of Christ. So Tamar has great fight. She has great resilience, and through her actions, the line of Judah is preserved and redeemed. Rahab has great faith and finds herself saved in the line of David as a result. Ruth has great love and great devotion and finds herself in the line of Christ as a result. Finally, there is Bathsheba. Now, you, most of you, I would imagine again this morning, know the story of David and Bathsheba. That's what she is known for. The text of Second Samuel, where this takes place, indicates that Bathsheba was most likely taken against her will to David. If you know the story, David and Bathsheba have an encounter. She becomes pregnant. David arranges to have Uriah, her husband, murdered. And on top of that, Bathsheba's son, by David, dies. So Bathsheba is a woman whose husband has been killed and whose first son has died. And now she's married to the man who killed her first husband. Now, David obviously realized what he had done was wrong. He did repent. And the Bible says he did love and he comforted her in the wake of all that. That's a remarkable story. Now, we don't really hear much else from Bathsheba. We don't know her story. All we know is a couple more things. She did have another son by the name of Solomon, who would, of course, be king and through whom eventually is the line of Christ. Solomon wrote many things. We know the name Solomon a great deal. Uh, the book of Proverbs in, uh, is mostly written by Solomon, but there is a, a fairly famous chapter that many of you perhaps would think about on a day like today. Proverbs chapter 31. And there is a passage of Proverbs 31 called The Virtuous Woman. It's written by a guy that's called King Lemuel. Now, there is no other reference in all of Scripture to Lemuel as a king. We don't know who he is. Jewish tradition actually has that King Lemuel 
is a pseudonym, name, if you will, for Solomon. Now, we don't know that for sure. There's no extra biblical evidence for that, but Jewish tradition holds that the writer of Proverbs 31 is, in fact, Solomon going by the name of Lemuel. Now, if that's the case, then as we read through Proverbs chapter 31, you see him describing a mother and a woman, most likely, and we know from elsewhere that Solomon had a great deal of respect for his mom, Bathsheba. So it's very probable, it's very possible anyway, that the, the, the Proverbs 31 woman might in fact be modeled or at least inspired by Solomon thinking of his mother Bathsheba. Now that's an interesting little thing there, isn't it? So think about this, Bathsheba, whose husband is murdered, whose son dies, uh, ends up giving birth to Solomon, might in fact be this woman who endured great suffering all that took place to her and becomes this one who is known for her teaching and for her adoration for her virtuousness for her virtue written in Psalm Proverbs 31 by perhaps Solomon so these four women in the line of Jesus they're women who engaged some of them in prostitution they are almost all from outside of Israel they are those whose husbands have died, who have been mistreated, and even abused and assaulted. They have sordid backgrounds. They're outcasts. They have no, by the standards of this world and by the standards of the culture they lived in, they had no value or qualifications in and of themselves. And yet, God esteemed them so highly that he included them in Matthew chapter 1 so that you and I could be talking about them 2,000 plus years later. They don't, they don't have the glorious backgrounds we might think of for the line of the Messiah. But here they are. A mom, grandma, it may be this morning that you don't feel qualified to be a mom. It may be that there are days you feel like a failure. You don't feel like you have the abilities to do all that it takes to be a mom. It feels overwhelming. And if you feel that way, you can imagine how these four women must have felt. And yet, God blessed and graced these four women with the gift of motherhood. They weren't in this role because they were qualified. They were there because God graced them and loved them and qualified them on his behalf. And the same is true even with grandmoms. God has given you a great blessing in being a mom or a grandmother. And whatever pain or grief may have been involved from time to time or may even be going on this morning, understand this. God has blessed you and he loves you and he has made you to be exactly who he wants you to be. Mom, I want you to be encouraged this morning. You have on your heart and on your, on your, on your life the blessing of the Lord in your role as a mother. If nothing else this morning, I want you to know that. Now, I want us to spend the rest of our time this morning looking at Mary. As we do so, I want us to actually scoot over to Luke chapter 1. So you can move on from Matthew and move over to the Gospel of Luke chapter 1. Now this is sometimes seen as a Christmas passage, but we're going to talk about Mary this morning. So Luke chapter 1, let me just set up what's going on. She has had the angel Gabriel announce to her all that's about to take place. 
she has gone over to her cousin Elizabeth's house, who is, and she is going to be uh, the mother of John the Baptist. And as the two of them encounter one another and share with one another what God has done in their lives, Mary responds with a song that we sometimes call the Magnificat. And in Luke chapter 1, verse 46, Mary says this, My soul exalts or magnifies the Lord. My spirits rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has regard for the humble estate of his bondslave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the Mighty One has also done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. He's brought down rulers from their thrones. He's exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given to Israel remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. And Mary stayed with her about Trying to remove Mary is probably for many kind of a, an icon of motherhood. At least that's how many perceive her. We got past perhaps some that at least four of the women have sordid backgrounds, perhaps, and people would elevate Mary. But here's the reality: Mary is a young teenage mom. She's most likely somewhere between 13 and 16 years old. She's from a small town that no one in her area and no one in her country even thinks about or cares about. Not because they don't know it, but because they, they've heard of it, they don't care about it. Nazareth was irrelevant. It was a nobody town, a nothing town, small, just a few hundred people at most. And her family is most likely very poor. So she is a small town, poor, teenage, bride to be and mom to be thought little of by no one. This is who Mary is. And there's no doubt in my mind that most like, like most moms, she probably felt like she was going to be inadequate to the task. Can you imagine women being in a situation where you're 13, 14, 15 years old and an angel shows up and says, you're going to be the mom to the savior of your people? How that might make you feel. Yes, on the one hand, you've You've got this great blessing, this great grace, but on the other hand, you might be thinking, what have I gotten myself into? This is who Mary is. And yet in her song, we see and recognize a great pattern, not just for moms and grandmothers, but for all of us this morning. She begins with this response to her cousin Elizabeth. She says, my soul exalts, or you may have the word magnifies, the Lord. Mary's going to do a handful of things here as a mom-to-be. She's going to magnify the Lord by telling what he has done for her, by telling the things he has done for her people, and telling about the things that he's going to do in the future. She's going to find joy in the salvation that will come through the work of her son. Now, we see the word magnify. We see the word exult. If, you, if you're like me, you hear the word magnify, there's a couple different things that might come to your mind. Maybe it's like a, a magnifying glass. It's trying to make something small, Look bigger so you can read it. Um, I have a pair of glasses that sometimes I used to read because the words are blurry to me. I need it to look bigger. Some of you may have, I know with this, this Bible that I use right now, when I was when I bought it about three years ago, I was in part looking for a Bible that had a larger print. Some of you guys may know what it means to need a Bible with large print so you can read it. It's the idea to make small things bigger so we can see them more clearly. 
Now that's one idea of magnifying. Now let me suggest here that this is not exactly what she's talking about. She's not talking about making something small big. Because nothing can be more grand than, than God himself already. So what's she talking about in magnifying or exalting the Lord? Well, she's talking about this. Instead of looking at an idea of a magnifying glass or perhaps a microscope making something small, big, think of the terms of a telescope. Now what you're looking at as a telescope is something that's very, very big, but it happens to be a long ways away. So whether you're looking at the moon or looking at one of the planets of our solar system or looking at a star that is a massive amount of distance away, you're looking at something very big, but you want to bring it into focus and see it more clearly. In a sense, it's small because it's so far away, but we magnify it so that we see more clearly the true scale of what it is that we're looking at and the true beauty of it. Let's look at this passage here. This idea of exalting and magnifying the Lord is more in that regards. Mary is waiting for us this morning to, to take something massive, take something beautiful, take something majestic beyond words and bring it into focus for us so that we can understand it and see it more clearly. So she's exalting the Lord. Now how does she do this? She's magnifying the Lord. How does she go about this? She says, my soul exalts the Lord has rejoiced in God my Savior for he has regard for the humble state of his bondservant. And she's going to begin to share with us in the song, first of all, the things that God has done for her. Again, we understand who Mary is. She is of some. She's somebody that this world will look at and say is nobody important. And yet, God has magnified her. God has graced her. God has blessed her. So she begins by understanding and talking about how this great and wonderful, majestic God has, from all of creation, plucked Mary out and said, "I will grace and favor you with this great task to be a mom." So she begins to tell of what God has done for her. But she doesn't stop there. She talks furthermore about what God has done, not just for her, but even for her people. He's blessed her, but he's done great, and he's done great things for her. She says, the holy is his name, for he is a mighty one. But she talks about and refers to just briefly some things that God has done in the past for the nation of Israel. And we can take some time if we want to, we're not going to this morning, rehearse all the things that we know that God has done through the people of Israel. From delivering Abraham to delivering through Joseph, through delivering them from, ex, through, from Egypt and Exodus, time and time and time again, God had blessed and rescued and redeemed the people of Israel. And so she begins by not only talking about what God has done for her, but what God has done for her people. And then she goes on to say what God is going to do. That he has a future. And that the future generations are going to see his mighty deeds and experience his mercy for generation upon generation. Now Mary is not a prophet. She doesn't know the details of all that's going to come. But she does know that God's going to continue to work. And I can find probably fewer things a mom could do that are more precious than to let her children know of what God has done for her. What God has done for those around her and what God will continue to do. I can tell you the story of my own mom's conversion. I can tell you the church about the church she grew up in. I can tell you about what uh, the process, whether she came to faith as a as a 12-year-old in a Presbyterian church in Pea Ridge, Arkansas. And I can tell you that because she's told me. I can tell you about what God did in her and my dad's life as they were a young married couple in Springdale because 
They've told me. She's told me what God has done in her life. And as we have talked through the years, I can tell you, not every detail I'm sure, but I can tell you the things that God has done in the life of my mom. I know that God's faithful because she's told me the stories of God being faithful to her. I know what God has done uh, throughout the history of not just her life, but of our family before her and, and even maybe even our people, so to speak. And she's talked about through the course of her life what God's going to do in the future. We know that God has a future for us as his people. I know some of these things because my mom shared them with me. And that's a priceless gift. And Mary's giving that gift here even in Luke chapter 1. And I'm sure she told her little boy Jesus this as he was growing up. I'm sure she told this to the other half-brothers and sisters of Jesus as they were growing up as well. She makes much of God. She magnifies him and makes him clear to those around her. And she brings him into focus. She finds joy in these things. She, she magnifies God and says, my spirit has rejoiced. Not only does she remember what God has done, but she takes great joy in that. It'd be one thing if the story was told with a great deal of uh, sorrow. The truth is, even difficult stories can be hard to tell. But Mary told these stories, I'm sure, with joy throughout the course of her life of what God had done. And yes, understand that as she was a mother to Jesus of the elders, as she, as she uh, grew up, as she matured, as she became a, a young mom in her teenage years, they went through a great deal. Remember that they had to leave Bethlehem not long after Jesus was born to preserve his life. They went to Egypt. For a couple years to preserve the life of Jesus. They went back to Nazareth with her having the reputation of being pregnant outside of marriage. She most likely had to deal with all kinds of rumors and innuendos and being an outcast even in her own family and even in her own home, her own hometown. These are all things that Mary most likely had to deal with and of course this is nothing in comparison to what she will one day deal with as she sees her own son flogged, spit upon, beaten, and crucified. Mary knows the pain, the difficulties of aspects of motherhood. And yet she says, I will rejoice in God, my Savior, as I make much of him. Oh, what a wonderful gift Mary is giving, not only her own family, but her own children, but even us this morning. My spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. She recognizes that God is her Savior. I don't know if she fully recognizes all that Jesus is going to do in the coming years, but she does realize that God is the one who saves her. That Mary is the one who was going to need rescuing as much as anybody else. We need to be very careful that as we think about Mary, as we uh, extol her virtues and look at her as an example this morning, that we realize that she's nothing more than either any of us here this morning. She was a sinner in need of salvation just like everyone else. She needed this grace of God, the work of God in her heart, just like everyone else did. She's no more uh, in lack of need of that than anyone else is. She needed a Savior, and she recognizes that God is, in fact, her Savior. And, of course, her Son, the Messiah, will, in fact, save her in the way that he has saved you and I. She recognizes that she needs a Savior. She has rejoiced in magnifying the Lord. She has recognized that she is in need of a Savior. She says... has regarded the humble state of his servant. She's calling herself humble and of low means. 
and she's recognizing that the activity of God is what's going to call her blessed. She recognizes it's not her own work, it's the work of God in her life. By the way, here's another truth to pass on, fathers, mothers, to our children. That there's no better work in this life that they can engage in. There's no better thing that can be accomplished in their life than to have the work of God in their hearts. You can attain great wealth. You can, great, you can obtain great fortune. You can obtain great fame. Have large families. All these things can be great and are, are incredible blessings. But the greatest thing a child can hear and know from their parents is to know that they need the rescuing of God in their lives to really grant them, prepare them for eternity. That they need to be saved and they need to come before the Lord in humility, seeking the work of God in their lives. There's no greater gift to pass on to your children than the recognition that they need the work of God in their lives just as we did. All generations will call her blessed because she has known the humility before God of his salvation. She's humble. She needs salvation. She talks about the mighty hand of God to come. Now, was Mary expecting God to show up with an army to kick out the Romans? I don't think that's what she's talking about here. What is, what is the might of God being recognized and coming out that she's talking about? It is salvation. How She uses the term how God has bared his arm. This idea of God flexing his muscles, so to speak. I, Brady and I, along with Bob Shockley, went out a little, did a little kayaking on Friday. All that paddling around the lake. You know, after you do it, couple hours or hour and a half or whatever it was of paddling your arms get a little sore but I, I got home and went man man my arms feel like they're really pumped up right now I, I felt I felt strong I've been working out and you, you might see uh, not me you might see younger men than me who feel strong do a little flexing make sure you see their muscles <laughs> I'm not doing that how does God flex? How does God show us his strength? He saves. He rescues. The ultimate show of strength of God is not simply creation, as beautiful as it is. The ultimate show of the strength of God is the fact that he redeems and rescues us from our sin. That's the ultimate bearing of God's strength. That's the might of his arm that he can rescue us from our rebellion and our decision to be part of the satanic kingdom of evil and again, the, the, the evil of the, the kingdom of darkness he rescues out of that and says evil sin satan darkness will not win i will defeat it that's his show of strength that's what god is doing for us now obviously mary is in a bit of a unique circumstance as a mom being the mom to the messiah that's that's a that's a pressure there you would think but again, see Mary's heart to make much of the Lord, to rejoice in him, to recognize her need of salvation, to be humbled before him, and to be strengthened by the strength of God. Moms, grandmothers, aunts, sisters, children, I can think of nothing more profound that our moms could pass down to us than these things right here. I'm thankful for a mom. I'm thankful for a wife who's done that with my own sons. This morning, maybe you're thankful for someone in your life who's done these things for you. 
Maybe you need to be those things for someone else. Maybe this morning you aren't a mom. Doesn't mean you can't be these things for others. It doesn't mean you can't pass down the joy and make of salvation, that you can't make much of who God is and be that influence on those around you. This is what God has called the church to be, by the way. That we are a people this morning who will make much of God, who will tell of his wondrous deeds, who will speak of the joy he has given us, the salvation he has made known to us, and will make known his strength in redeeming and rescuing us from our sins. This is who the church is today. This is who moms and dads are today. This is who God has called us to be. Oh, these are the moms that we're grateful for. These are the women, the grandmothers, the aunts, the uncles, the Sunday school teachers that God has called us to be. I'm grateful for these women in my life. I hope you are as well. I know God's placed those women and those people in your life and this morning you can give thanks for them. So whether it is the, the fight of Tamar, the faith of Rahab, the devotion of, of Ruth, the endurance and nobility of Bathsheba, the worship example that Mary gives us. God has placed these examples of motherhood in our lives this morning to inspire us, to lead us to worship Him, to know the salvation that comes through Christ. And we're grateful for all of them this morning. 